Amen. Church, please go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, worship team. What an awesome time of worship. Amen. Oh, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping him. Church, it's been a full week. It's been a full week this week. Heather and I left on Wednesday to go just to an overnight conference. It was a GCC conference um, geared toward pastors and their wives. It was a great time of refreshment, great time of learning, and glad to be back. Glad to be back, back, glad to be here, glad to be preaching the word. You know, if you're uh, familiar with the show NCIS, then you'll know that the, the main character, Leroy Jethro Gibbs, has a list of rules. It's a list of rules that he lives by. <clears throat> and during the show, as the show goes on, it's, it's not uncommon for one of the characters to refer to one of these rules. And many times they'll say something like, rule number nine, always carry a knife. Or rule number three, never be unreachable. There's one particular rule that captures what we're going to talk about well, and it's rule number 39. Anybody know it? Rule number 39, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Now, in the characters of NCIS, of course, what they're referring to is when they are investigating a crime, and you've got two people who seemingly don't know each other, and yet they discover a connection. That's not a coincidence. That's a clue. In the book of Esther, the whole book is built on what appears to be a series of coincidences. For instance, if, if Vashti had not disobeyed the king, then Ahasuerus would not be looking for another. Or if Esther had not been taken, she would have never been queen. And on and on it goes as you read through the story, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, or is it? Our passage today is fraught with irony, humor, and what appears to be a series of coincidences. We've said this before, God is not mentioned by name in the book of Esther. And if we were to conclude that the absence of God's name meant that he was not active, then we would have to admit that the entire story is random chance. But that would be erroneous. The events that happen in the book of Esther are not a result of random chance. They're not coincidence, but they are, careful they are a careful orchestration of Almighty God. He is working behind the scenes. And my friends, within the sovereign, providential plan of God, there is no such thing as a coincidence. God's work is never coincidental. He does nothing by accident, and this morning, I want to continue our study of Esther, and I want to walk through the chapter. Then I want to point out three ways that God works that are not coincidental. They are intentional. So we left our story last week with Haman setting up this impaling pole for Mordecai. And what happens next? If you haven't done so already, join me in Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, verse 1 reads as this. On that night, the king could not sleep. On that night, the king could not sleep. 
This is the turning point of our story. You might say that this is where God is doing his greatest work within the book. I mean, God has been intervening this whole time, but he does something significant here. What follows from the king's insomnia is a chain of events that leads to the great reversal in the story. So far, as we've read and as you've seen, it appears that Haman is on top. The enemy has the upper hand. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And even though Esther's gone to the king, and even though she survived that encounter, and even though she has a plan that is in place to stop Haman, he still at this point in the story appears to have the upper hand. He's got the king in his pocket. His plan is in place to annihilate the Jews, and by law, that cannot be undone. And he's going to the king right now to request that Mordecai be executed. But that night, the king couldn't sleep. Read on. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. As a way of trying to remedy his sleep, he has the chronicles read to him. Now, we saw these in chapter 2. You might remember in chapter 2, at the very end of the chapter, Mordecai reveals a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. And it kind of feels, as you're reading the end of chapter 2, that that's just kind of thrown in there, like a little throwaway side story, and you're thinking, that's nice, what does that have to do with anything? Guess what? It comes back. Mordecai reveals this plot, and the event is recorded in the chronicles in the presence of the king. It's written down. And that night, the king has these chronicles read to him. Now, it's not clear from what we know of history if this was some kind of typical practice that they did or if, by chance, suppose, the king decided to have these chronicles read to him. But either way, look what happens as a result. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This event, by the way, that happened in chapter 2 happened five years previous to where we are now in our story. Mordecai had saved the life, and for five years, he'd gone unrecognized. That tells us something about Mordecai. For all he knew, he would never receive recognition for his act of loyalty. And yet, he kept serving the king. That's character. That's humility. That's a man who does what's expected of him no matter what. The king had apparently completely forgotten about this instant incident and suddenly his, this is being read to him and he has this thought. Look at verse 3. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now we know from earlier in our story that Mordecai had been Overlooked, but to add insult to injury, we open chapter 3 and Haman is promoted. See, the original readers of the book of Esther would have expected, after Mordecai had done this amazing thing, to have been rewarded. But the next thing that they read is Haman is rewarded. The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. Now, that would have been a major ball dropped. 
It was the way of kings to reward, honor, and give public attention to those who were loyal. In fact, the historian Herodotus relates a story about King Ahasuerus who made a man governor of Cilicia just for saving Ahasuerus' brother's life. Failure to give honor promptly to those who earned it brought shame to the king. Ahasuerus suddenly feels ashamed that he had not honored Mordecai. Look at verse 4. And then the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king asks, who is in the court? Now it's interesting. This may or may not have been the same court that Esther had waited for the king in chapter 5, but it is interesting that one day previous, Esther waited for the king in order to enact her plan. Now Haman waits for the king to gain permission to execute Mordecai. And it's also interesting, as you think about it, both men have presumably been up all night. One couldn't sleep, so he had the chronicles read to him of a man who had saved his life. The other, Haman, presumably couldn't sleep and was because he was up all night getting things ready to execute that same man. I told you last week that the idea of the gallows here is not what we normally think of a wooden structure with a hangman's noose, but rather an impaling pole with which to display a corpse. Verse 5, And the king's, king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Now Haman, unlike Esther and unlike most people, was one of the king's personal advisors. He was one of, the, one of the people that was allowed to see the king's face. So the fact that Haman was waiting for him was no big deal. So Haman came in, verse 6, and the king said, now stop right there for a second, the king said, that was probably common, the king to speak first. But let me ask you, how would the story have been different if Haman had spoken first? Coincidence? I don't think so. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, once again, we see the ineptness of the king, right? Why did the king have to ask this? He can't make decisions on his own. True to his own nature, he can't figure out his own course of action. He needs advice on how to rectify this this embarrassing situation. He should have known how to honor Mordecai. But as we've seen, he's always running to his advisors. Not that it's bad to have advisors. It's good for a king to have advisors. But he can't seem to make a decision on his own. He needs help to figure out what to do about Mordecai. Haman needs the king's permission to have Mordecai executed. Both men need something that has to do with the same man. Both have arrived at this moment to get answers about Mordecai. God's timing is not only perfect, but in this situation, it's ironic. So the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king like to delight to honor more than me? He's showing his ego again. Rearing that big head. Now, don't forget, in chapter 5, Haman is coming from a place where his ego had just been boosted. You remember that? 
he went home and he was boasting of all of his accomplishments. He was boasting of everything he had. He was boasting of his sons and all of his friends were there to listen to him boast and to, to egg him on, so to speak. He mentions Mordecai, of course, and his, his wife and friends casually say, if Mordecai bothers you that much, just have him killed. Haman loves the idea. So he's coming with, from that place where he, his ego has been boosted. And here he comes to the king, and he thinks to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than moi? Now, we might be tempted to think as we read that, how did the author of Esther know what was in Mordecai's head? Well, I don't think it's really that difficult when we consider where he's come from chapter 5. And when you consider what he's about to say in the following verses, I don't think it's hard to figure out what he was thinking there, but don't forget this important fact too. The ultimate author of the book of Esther, as well as the rest of the Bible, is God, the Holy Spirit, who knows our thoughts. Look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Wow. Now, this would be a great honor. This would be a great honor for anyone at that time. And Haman, of course, is thinking of himself. He's thinking of setting himself up to be greatly honored before the people of Susa. Now, note, he can't be honored any further in his position because he's second in command. He can't ask for any, any promotion, so to speak, because he's as high as he can go without being king himself. So he's thinking, probably thinking to himself, I'll be honored like a celebrity would be today. Not only that, but this kind of a gesture would also have brought honor to the king, so it would reinforce Haman's relationship with the king. Wearing robes the king had worn was a great honor. They were presumably purple, embroidered, they would be elegant, but there was something else. There was a superstition among ancient beliefs that a king's robe was mystically imbued with kingly power. And if you were to wear that, then you would be in touch with kingly power. Haman may or may not have believed that, but he did see this as a way of gaining dignity in the eyes of those in the city because of the close association with the king. You know the, you know the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, if you and I happen to be talking to somebody and we found out that they worked closely with someone popular, we might think, wow, that's impressive. Why? Association. Association with someone famous or powerful comes off as impressive. When I was in college, our very large school of 210 students decided to start a basketball team. I did not play. But somehow, we were blessed to gain a coach who had played professional basketball. I don't know how that happened, and I don't remember what team he played on, so don't ask me. For our small school to be associated with such a person was significant. 
Now, also riding a horse that the king had ridden, that would also be a great honor. It was just stacking honor on top of honor here. Archaeological discoveries of ancient pictures show that royal horses sometimes would wear crowns themselves, or they would take the mane and they would braid a sort of crown on the top of the horse's head. Now, we see this kind of honor bestowed elsewhere in Scripture. When Joseph was finally honored before Pharaoh in Genesis 41... Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring and he gives him garments and he gives him a golden chain and he, tell, and he has him ride second in his own chariots. Honor. Now further honor is granted by having, you might see that in verse nine, one of the king's most noble officials. One of those people, one of the people who is, who is privileged to see the king's face, they are to dress and lead the honoree through the streets. Not one of the servants, but one of the royal advisors. Think of this as basically a parade where the honoree is just sitting on this horse dressed in a king's robe and the person leading the way is shouting out, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. That would get everyone's attention in the city, which is exactly what Haman wanted. Haman's suggestions here reveal his love of all things royal and his covet, coveting of honor. We've told you before that Haman loves attention. He wants all eyes on him. And this might also suggest that Haman may have had fantasies of being king himself. Perhaps he stood there, a grin on his face, eagerly waiting for the king to grant him what he requested. But watch what happens next, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. I really wish that scripture had recorded Haman's response (laughs) or at least the expression on his face I mean, I can just imagine the color draining as he realizes what he, he has to now do. You realize he's been shut up. He can't request Mordecai be killed now. His whole plan has been derailed, and he has no response, and you have to obey the king. So look at verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, And led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I would bet that this is probably one of the most hilarious points of scripture. (laughs) Irony. Picture the scene. Mordecai is honored before the city. In fact, that same city square, just a couple chapters ago, he'd been sitting in sackcloth and ashes, mourning is the same place he is now honored on the king's horse and in the king's robe. Haman, of course, is utterly humiliated. In literature, we would call this point in the story the reversal. Everything the story has been building up to, the destruction of the Jews, Mordecai's execution, Haman's apparent victory over things, everything is now flipping on its head. The whole 
story is unraveling and changing directions. And then watch what happens next. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Just like that. I love that. It's like Mordecai receives this great honor, but unlike Haman, he doesn't let it go to his head. He just goes back to work. It's like, that's nice, thank you. I'm gonna get back to my responsibility now. And I just love that. You see the humility of Mordecai in this. He returns back to work. Haman, on the other hand, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. Utterly humiliated. Now, covering the head, of course, was a way of hiding shame. And we don't know, maybe he used his hands as he, I just picture him kind of running home with his hands over his head, or maybe he had some sort of cloth he threw over himself. Maybe he ran into a light pole as he was running. I don't know. But it's obvious he's trying to hide from the eyes of the people that earlier he was coveting. This is the picture of shame and humiliation. When I was reading this, I was reminded sometimes on the news you might see people who are accused of crime or who've been arrested and they're trying to hide their face from the cameras. I remember one particular person I saw one time who had their jacket zipped up over their head so that the cameras wouldn't see their face. And I can't say I blame them. That would be a humiliating situation. That's the idea that we see here. You know, it's interesting, in 2 Samuel 15, 30, David, King David, is fleeing from Absalom, and he has his head covered in response to his shame over the situation. You know, if you remember from last week, Haman had only hours previously been boasting of all he had and every honor that had been bestowed on him, and now he is wallowing in shame. This is Proverbs 16, 18, in the flesh. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Not only, though, is he hiding his face due to shame, but there's a bit of irony there considering what's going to take place in the next chapter. And you'll have to come next, back next week to see what I'm talking about. But Haman here starts his fall. Now look at verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, first, let's point out something here. There are three groups here. There's his wife and his friends, we looked at those and saw those last week, but there's a third group, the wise men. There's wise men here. Where did they come from? Who are they? You'll probably remember, of course, King Ahasuerus had wise men. All kings had wise men, had counselors, had advisors. You didn't have to be king, though, to have advisors. You didn't have to be king to have wise men. In fact, smart rulers people who understood how to rule well would have men for counsel. So what's going on there is a subtle reminder of how high Haman has climbed the corporate ladder. He's second in command. He has his own group of wise men. He has climbed that high and it's from that height that he's beginning to fall. 
Now, let's look at what they're actually saying to him. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They're recognizing something here. Mordecai is of the Jewish people, the people you're trying to destroy. And this event that's happened today is starting the ball rolling in the opposite direction. Now, how could they know that? It could be simply that they're foresighted. It could be simply that they're seeing something that's coming because of the events that have happened that day. And some people are like that. Some people in this room are like that, that you can see or you can guess what's going to happen because of what's happening in the present, foresightedness. Maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe Zeresh and the men that have heard everything Haman has said has seen what Haman can't see, that you're so obsessed with this Mordecai, he's of the Jewish people you're trying to destroy, your shame has come from him, it's just going to continue to lead to your downfall. Maybe that's what's going on there. There's another possibility. In Persia at this time, it was, it was a polytheistic culture. They believed in multiple gods. And some gods had favor on you, and some gods didn't. And of course, if you know anything about uh, Greek mythology or anything, they, gods would fight. And sometimes some gods would have control of the events of that day, and then sometimes other gods would have control of the events of that day. So sometimes the gods who favored you would have control of the day, and you'd have a good day. Other times the other gods would gain control, and you wouldn't have a good day. So it could be that Zeresh and the men here are just thinking in their realm of theology that, uh-oh, the gods who don't like you have control. So things are shifting. Maybe that's where this is coming from. But you know, there's something else here to note. His wise men, and especially his wife, they seem to have no remorse over what they're saying. They just kind of seem to say it matter-of-factly. We, we kind of get that sense from the, tech, from the text. And sent, in fact, one commentator named Mary Cornwallis suggests that the unfeeling response toward Haman from his wife and friends is not surprising since Haman would have surrounded himself with people not unlike himself. Haman, this self-centered, glory-seeking person, would have naturally surrounded himself by similar people. So what did they care if he fell from his place of honor? Verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Haman hasn't even had time to catch his breath. He's led away to Esther's second feast, his humiliation still looming over his head, all because, coincidentally, the king couldn't sleep that night. Or is it a coincidence? Within the sovereign, providential plan of God, there is no such thing as a coincidence. Now, I wanted to take time to work through that chapter and just unpack it a little bit. Now I want to take a few moments and talk about what do we learn about God? What do we learn about how God works from the events of Esther chapter 6? I've told you that in God's providential plan, there are no coincidences. And let's look at three reasons why. So first of all, first point in your notes is this. God works through seemingly menial events. God works through seemingly menial events. Everyday, normal, 
boring. On that night, the king couldn't sleep. Anyone ever had a sleepless night? Happens. You know, we saw in chapter 5 that when Haman left the feast, he was joyful and glad of heart. And there's no reason to think the king didn't leave in the same way. So why couldn't he sleep? You know, did the cares of his kingdom weigh in his mind so heavily that he couldn't find rest? I mean, let's be honest. What we know of King Ahasuerus, that does not seem likely. He doesn't give us the impression of a leader who is burdened by his people. Honestly, everything we've seen about Ahasuerus points to the fact that he just lives for himself. So it doesn't seem like the kingdom's bothering him. So what's going on? God's at work. God is at work. And God works through seemingly menial ways, keeping the king awake for his own purposes. It wasn't a coincidence. It was providence. And we've seen this in our lives. I know that you have had experiences in your life that appear to be so coincidental, you knew it was God. We could sit down and we could probably share stories about that. You knew this wasn't a coincidence. It was about God. I'll share one real quick. You know, most of you know that we have four adopted kids. Back in 2008, the birth mom was going to the same family doctor we were going to. And that's how we got connected. And all these years later, we have four beautiful kids. Was that a coincidence? No. That was God. That was God at work, using everyday things to accomplish his will. Now, I, wanna, I want you to guard against something. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me because I'm not saying that every bizarre thing that happens to you is God at work. That would be immature to conclude that every little weird coincidence that happens to me is God's work. For instance, I celebrated my birthday this past week. I happened to share the same birthday as Viggo Mortensen. If you don't know him, he plays Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, my favorite character from the Lord of the Rings. Is that God doing some miraculous thing? No. That's a coincidence. Vigo had to be born on Sunday, and I had to be born on Sunday, and it just happened. My point is, God works in the menial events of life. Yes, when God is working, there are no coincidences, but sometimes we might be tempted to look too deeply at things and draw erroneous conclusions where God is not working. So just, just a word of caution there. But that being said, God does use seemingly menial events to accomplish his purpose. Now, why would he do that? Why would he work through insomnia? Why wouldn't he just call down the forces of the universe to do something miraculous? God has infinite power. He could do anything. Why work through menial everyday ways? Well, let me ask you this. What's more impressive, a crazy miracle that changes someone's life or a God who is so in control of everything that he can take billions of lives on planet Earth and weave them in such a way to bring about his perfect plan? Add on to that, he can do that even amidst sinful, foolish, damaging choices that we make every day. Which is more mind-boggling? Every day is a miracle. God can take all of our lives, all of our experiences, and orchestrate his perfect providential plan. That 
That doesn't even fit in my brain. So what should that teach us? Scripture says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He, right now, is working in and through you for his perfect plan. He's probably doing things that you have not even thought of. He's probably working in ways you can't even imagine. It could be that the tiniest thing in your life might be just the thing that he uses to bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ, to touch somebody else's life, to heal a broken relationship. He could be using that right now. What does that teach us? That nothing in our life is wasted. Nothing in our life is wasted or meaningless or purposeless. God is sovereign. And he is enacting his perfect plan even in small ways in your everyday life. So church, trust him. Trust him when you're discouraged. Trust him when you can't see the good. Trust him when you think things are hopeless. Trust him when you feel afraid. Trust him when you don't know what's going to happen. Because he's working. Though you may not see it, though you may not feel it, God is always working. God works through seemingly menial events. That's the first thing we see from our text here. The second thing we see is this. God works according to his time frame. God works according to his time frame. And I got some news for you. Ain't no way you can change that. Though at times we really would like to, we can't change that God works according to his time frame. Why did Mordecai get overlooked in chapter 2? What would have happened if Mordecai had been honored before Haman had come along? There would have been nothing to stop Haman from carrying out his plan to execute Mordecai in chapter 6. See, God intentionally delayed Mordecai's honor to protect Mordecai. God's timing is perfect. Who knows, maybe Mordecai spent the last five years wondering about this. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he was just able to move on. Nevertheless, God used it. You know, I graduated from college in 2003. I didn't get hired on into full-time ministry till 2011. And I spent all that time looking for ministry because that's what I believed God was calling me to do. And he closed doors left and right. And I prayed so many, what are you doing, God? You called me to this. And at the time, I was living in Alabama, and I, I wanted to stay there, and I wanted to find a youth pastor job, and God said, well, that's a nice plan, but no. He wanted me here. He had a plan, and his timing was perfect. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that the king couldn't sleep. Furthermore, it's no coincidence that the chronicles being read to the king that night were of the events that told about Mordecai saving the king's life. How many chronicles did they have? How many stories did they have? How many things were recorded about what Ahasuerus did? And that night, they read about that thing? Those events led the king to giving Mordecai the honor he should have gotten five years ago and thereby saving Mordecai's life. Think of the irony. Think of this. 
Mordecai saves the life of the king. God allows his loyalty to be overlooked, and then five years later, the king saves the life of Mordecai. God's timing is perfect. He works according to his time frame. So let me ask, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on from God? How have you felt overlooked? Could it be that God is simply waiting for the right time in your life to bring about whatever it is you're waiting on? Are you waiting for somebody to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you waiting for circumstances in your life to change? Are you waiting for God to do something to change the direction of your life? Let me say here that sometimes that direction won't change till we get to glory. Other times it may. Nevertheless, it's according to God's time frame, not ours. So let me encourage you, whatever situation you may find yourself in, bring it before the Lord in prayer. Confess your impatience if that's been a problem and ask for strength to wait on the Lord. God works through seemingly menial events. God works according to his time frame. Lastly, the third thing we see is this. God works through whom he chooses. God works through whom he chooses. God is not limited by people. Some people might think that they have powers like God has, but God, they don't. God is not limited by people. He's not limited by who people are. He's not limited by how people act. He's not limited by whether or not they believe in him. In our story, God works through a self-centered, pleasure-loving king by simply keeping him awake. Through the sleeplessness of a king, God orchestrates the events of chapter six, sparing Mordecai's life, honoring him, and reversing the events that Haman has put into place. God worked through Ahasuerus, but not only that, God worked through Haman, giving honor to Mordecai by the hand of the man who planned to kill him. But in addition to that, God works through this pagan wife and these pagan wise men to rightly conclude to Haman that he's about to fall before Mordecai the Jew. God's gonna work through whom he chooses. He's not limited by fallen people and that, my friends, should be a comfort to us. God's not limited by negative neighbors. God's not limited by irritable bosses. God's not limited by incompetent leaders. And you might be in a situation right now where it seems like everyone around you is godless and self-centered, but take heart because God's not limited by them. Actually, they're a part of his great plan somehow. But you know, let's, let's take this a step more personally. God is not limited by fallen people. He works through whom he chooses, and that includes you and me. Let's be honest. God has worked in and through us despite the mess that we've made. Despite the fact that I all too often pursue my own agenda, neglecting what God has given me, neglecting the responsibilities God has given me, he lovingly woos me back and works in and through me and through you. I don't limit God. 
you don't limit God. Your sins and failures, they have their consequences, yes, but ultimately they do not limit God's plan. He loves you. He redeems you. He's working in and through you right now. And let me just add something. Maybe you're sitting in your seat right now and you don't know this Jesus person. You don't know these, this, this, what we've been talking about and you're wondering to yourself, you guys have something that I don't. Can I just encourage you? The message of the gospel is this. We're sinners, all of us. No one escapes that. But God, who is perfect, took on flesh, became a man, and died in your place. Then he rose from the grave, defeating death, so that any who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And if that's you this morning, and you have more questions, would you come talk to me or talk to one of our elders? We want to pray with you. We want to share some things with you. God's working in you, church. He's working in and through you right now. And by the way, that doesn't let us off the hook. We shouldn't think, you know, hmm, I don't limit God, so it doesn't really matter how I live, right? Wrong. Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We have been called to a life of righteousness. And just because I don't limit God, that doesn't let me off the hook, I still strive for righteousness, not to earn God's favor. I've already got that. But because I have God's favor, I should strive for righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. That's our goal, church. But where you and I have made a mess, there's grace. There is such grace. Strive for righteousness, church, but ultimately remember the gospel. The gospel is this. You are desperately sinful but you are deeply loved. On one ordinary, seemingly menial night, a baby was born, a perfect baby. And through that child occurred the reversal of human destiny. In her commentary on Esther, Karen H. Jobes writes this. You can read this on the screen. The ordinary and miraculous intersect in Jesus Christ. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our destiny has been reversed from death to life against all expectation. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the great reversal of history where our sorrow has been turned to joy. The birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus are not coincidental in any way. It was purposeful, divinely orchestrated, the plan of God to bring his son into the world to reverse the direction we were going so that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus have hope in this life, and in the life to come. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Jesus, precious Jesus, you are so good.
You are so righteous. You are so holy. You are so awesome. We praise you that you are at work in our lives. You are at work in the everyday. You change and do your thing despite us. You do it in your time frame and you do it in ways we don't even expect. Jesus, we give you praise and thanks. Praise and thanks for who you are. Praise and thanks for what you've done. Praise and thanks for what you continue to do. We say this in your great name. Amen.